talk a lot about tech. We do. I mean, it is. It is. It's one of the most fun topics. It but, is. But there are a lot of other fun topics as well. There are. Like, honestly, what I've never, what I never talked to you about, like, we always talk about, like, the micro, the applications. Yeah. But the thing is, you work at Meta. Yeah. Do you ever think about what, like, conceptually, what it means or what it is like to work for one of the big drivers of technology, like, especially, like, software technology in the world? Yeah, that is a very interesting question. Um Less than I should, probably. Like, I am, like, down in the weeds a lot in the micro. But I think it's interesting, like, seeing the scale that that you work at. And it's a scale that's so large that sometimes I feel like it becomes a number. Um, like, you know, you have, like, a million or 10 million or 100 million people or, like, a billion people. Um, and these are just, like, numbers on a dashboard. You're, like, you're trying to optimize it to, like, help people like find some value out of what you're building. Um, but you're really working at this like very, very macro level. Um, and so I think sometimes it's really important to also like dive deep into like what individual people are like thinking and feeling um, individual users. Um, so I think that's like the more personal experience. And then I think you asked more about um, how it feels and um I would say like very humbling sometimes. Um, it's uh, like, I, I think on both parts, like you're a small, like you're a small part of a very large machine. So I think that's like one of the like downsides that people say like often about big tech. Um, you know, you're one of like 70,000 or 100,000 like people like working on this thing. But at the same time, like in terms of like the ratio of like each person to the number of people that you're serving with your product, it can be like much larger than yeah. like many startups. Um, so I think it's humbling in both sense, like humbling in that, like you're a small piece of like the whole machine, but also humbling in that, like you do feel like your impact is very widespread, to like many, many people. Um, and so you have to like think very carefully about uh, how they like the products are built, like how they're changed over time to make sure like, you know, like, like you, you could build a product that's like, better for 99% of people, but like worse for 1% of people. But um, th that like means something different when you have like 100 users and maybe like one user gets a somewhat worse experience versus if you have like a billion users and 1% is like 10 million people. Um, it's like a different kind of different kind of calculus. Um, so I think that just like flows through everything that that you work on, like at a large tech company. That makes a lot of sense. How does it does it really register in the day to day? Like, is that something? Is that part of the discussion, part of team meetings? Is it something like the the? Is it like a weight on your shoulders? Um, at times, yes. Uh, I think I've been lucky that I haven't worked on like anything extremely critical. It, like, for example, um, like the team's working on like safety, or working on um you know, like making sure that uh, elections are secure, like on, on the, on the apps, because like the apps really do seem to have like a substantial impact. Um, I can't like really speak to this. I don't know any of the data, but um, you know, like when you have a billion people, like, or multiple billions, like communicating, like in like a certain town square, then 
uh, it's important to keep it like fair and civil, but um, those those boundaries of what is fair and civil are also hard to define. Um, but yeah, so going back to the day to day, I would say yes and no. Like the no is I've been on like smaller products usually. And so like we are more in that startup mindset, like trying to grow something and help people find value from it. Um, and it's still small enough that the dangers are not so large. But I think it's something that you have to think about like in the long term. And so, yes, it is a weight. Can you can you imagine a billion people? No, it's it's like very hard. Um, so I think like it's an art to, and I think like every company should probably try to do this better, but like to create like a clearer story of um, who the people, the users are. Like at the very least, um, you know, like if you're a product manager, like try to do a really good job of like communicating to your engineering team, like. What are the kinds of people who are using this? Like, what are some good examples of like things that they use it for? It's like it, it helps it helps people who are far farther away from the user like understand better um, what the day to day for like a user is like. Uh, so I've actually forgotten your question. I, I kind of <laughs> went on a tangent. Uh, remind me again. How do you make it like I do feel it on the day to day? Like, how do you make it present in your day to day? But what you just touched upon on yeah. you have, I mean, like extracting it just from you as a person and looking like at the people you work with or the whole production chain yeah. within. So you, you were mentioning making it more tangible in terms of painting a picture. Yeah creating like a customer journey yeah, yeah so yeah something cool i think that is done um is like when like ux researchers like user experience researchers go out and like they do like real customer interviews um and you get like that more long-form feedback rather than like you know say like like a b tests or like bread and butter for um a lot of these very large tech companies but i think it's also important to have like that broad kind of feedback but also like very deep feedback with representative users. Um, and I think it's important that um, while companies should be data-driven, and like that is how like most tech companies, I think, are run, like they run on, you know, like let's define metrics that are proxies at the end of the day for um, you know, user satisfaction and like user value. And like let's try to optimize for those because like that's like something that everyone can more easily agree on. I think it's also important to have that like more human kind of feedback. Um, where, yeah, like people, they just go out and talk and they give like, they, they take, they give like, they get these long interview summaries, um, and they share them with the team. Um, and that helps like give people a deeper understanding. So I think that's just like a generally important thing for organizations to do, especially as they get larger, because you have more and more layers between, um, like everyone, like, you know, like you have more and more layers between like user experience people or like product people or like data people and that flow of information in the organization is um, also an art. And I think why managers do need to exist. A lot of people are like, we shouldn't have as many managers. Um, But uh, getting that organizational structure right is like really very hard. Like getting these people all just like going in the same direction. Um, And I do see that like also on the day-to-day. I think it's like another like aspect of big tech companies um, 
like the communication overhead is so high that it's like not really about you anymore. Like someone who's effective at bringing like other engineers together or like communicating information better. Like for example, from like user needs all the way to like um, some like engineering team, like that's that's really critical and like just as important as like being able to code lots of good code. <laughs> yeah, making the communication flow and the right communication. Flow. Yes, yes. That's an insane challenge because in the end, that's all we really have, right? Communication. Yeah. Um, but the other like side of it, I think, is um, so so you learn like something very like particular, I think, at big tech companies um, that you don't really get anywhere else, which is like this feedback at scale. Um, so figuring out like what really resonates with like tons and tons of people. But I think what's missing is that like earlier process, like say like when you're in a startup, when you need to build something like without that feedback or sometimes like maybe big companies can go into like a more local optima where they're like optimizing kind of greedily against like this like very large set of people. Um, but because it's so data driven, you lose sight of like these large leaps in your product that someone can make. Like, you know, maybe like in a smaller company, you just have like one or two people who are like calling the shots. And they just have like a good idea. They're like, this would really resonate with customers. Like maybe it's a little weird and strange um, and it would take a while to get there. But like you make that bet and like maybe sometimes, um, and I think this is like the natural thing about big companies, like they lose that ability to make bets. Um, and it's always also a struggle to balance that like more slower moving like machine versus like that ability to make like large bets on things that um, are important or make sense. So how do you really do a good job at that? Because in the end, like, if you, I guess, okay, so if you have like a lot of users, you think in terms of testing, right? Yes. Like you always kind of me metrics, testing, build a it, hypothesis, yes. see what happens. So a good manager, a good team lead, Whenever you make a change, whenever you or any external change happens, you always try to go hypothesis first and design an experiment around it in a sense. Something like that. I think it's like the best way to do it is probably like a hybrid of data and hypothesis. Um, to be very frank, like sometimes I think data is almost like it is important, but like to make the decision. But sometimes I almost think of it more as a way to get everyone on the team to agree. like. Very frankly, sometimes I feel like data is um, like data doesn't lie except when it does. Um, and so, like, you know, like, like you can pull data that looks like any way you want. Um, so I, I think what the point of this is that like your data should give you some signal to go in some direction, but it'll naturally still have some ambiguity like within it, like like in terms of the final decision that you make. It could still be like in a range of like a bunch of like you know different ways to go, and then at that point, like you have, um, just you know like someone who like understands the space very well, and you solve that human element. That's just like okay, like we should do like this or that. We should prioritize these things. Um, and you know this is like the point of like why I think you still have like product managers that have to that should be like helping to like decide strategy rather than just like delegating everything out to experiments. And they're like, let's just experiment over the entire space 
and it'll just tell us exactly what we need to do. Um, I think I actually saw like a thread on like Twitter, maybe threads, but um, about um, yeah, like the pro- like the experiment delegator, product manager versus like the like re- like the product manager that actually thinks because like yeah, there's like more of a strategy element because there's like a kind of product manager. And again, okay, I, I don't want to like poo poo like this this role like or sure. or any variants of this role because I've never worked as a product manager. But something that resonated was like you can either be a PM who's um, delegating out to like lots of experiments, um, or you can try to like kind of walk that line between like gathering um, like opinions like from either you know yourself or like from people who who are good in the organization like versus also delegating out to experiments. Um, yeah, so it's important to have that like hybrid approach. I think. Uh, yeah. Hmm. That's a tough decision to make because it also comes from, as a PM, like what you experienced mm-hmm. before. Like maybe uh, there are some PM like trainee programs like Google has. Meta has as well, right? Yeah, the, there's a rotational pro- like product yeah. manager, and Google has APM, which is like the yeah. associate PM. Yeah. Um, or like what you just experienced as an engineer before, or as mm-hmm. UX researcher, designer before. Yeah. But that's a that's a good point uh, to reflect on that. What kind of PM you want to be, and also like when you want to rely on what, right? Like depending on yeah. the situation, different yeah. tactics. Yeah, sometimes yeah. There's like there are cases like one case for example is like you would like to have experiments and hypotheses first for everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like sometimes there's just like there's not enough time, and so you sort of have to like make your bet. And like get a little bit of data to like shrink your like action space or your decision space a little bit. Um, but you just have to like you just have to ship something based on your first inclination of what should be shipped. Um, and so yeah, running this balance is hard between like speed and surety. And, and I feel like I also see this as an engineer as well. Like um, as I grow, like I'm still frankly like still somewhat junior. I think. Um, and as an engineer, it's like dealing with ambiguity. Um, that is the hardest part about growing in this role over time. Like coding is not as important. And I think that's true for, I mean, basically everything. Um, the scope of your problems just becomes bigger and bigger. Uh, and you need to deal with that as best as you can. And one thing I've learned is that like good enough is um, very important. Like. And what I mean by that is just like you've you've made something, you're not like the data doesn't tell you for sure, like whether it's optimal or the best, and maybe like it could be built better, but it's an improvement. Like it's imp- the mindset should be like improvement first and not like build the optimal solution. Cause maybe you can see the optimal solution, but you should just ship something that's better than what came before. And that'll have to be good enough. Um, you can't like wait to try to get towards something that's like even better at times. So really find the first time, like point in time where you, mm-hmm. where it's sufficient. Yeah. You can like feel like fulfill all the requirements mm-hmm. and kind of like yeah. bottle up your ego and your yeah. perfectionism and just. Yeah, exactly. You just like send it out. And I think it's like, one could think of this as like, it's fine, right? Because you have this like optimal product, like at the very end, and you have your starting point where, where you oftentimes have nothing. 
And you can think of that as like a straight line where you're just like building like one feature after another, and then you eventually get to like the optimal product. And that's the like easy way to like, that's the easiest way um, to go about it. And like, in that way, like you don't feel guilty if you have like an MVP and it has like some, like only a subset of the features. Cause you'll just like add them as fast as you can. And you just have to prioritize on this linear path. But I think like the interesting thing about product development is more like when you have to make like suboptimal decisions, like globally suboptimal decisions um, to do a better job in like the short term. So what that means is like, you can add a feature um, that's like not like like that you might have to like even remove later, but like but it's needed right now by like certain customers, and so you it's like the path is not really like straight. It's more like you go like here, and then you have to go back a little bit, and then you have to backtrack, and then you have to like go like on like a different route, and then eventually you reach that like optimal product. But that like path is not necessarily um, straight. How can someone who's never worked on product imagine this journey like the design of kind of how you and your team kind of lay it out yeah the milestones you define like mm -hmm. is it someone comes to you and is like gives you the whole plan the big picture and then assigns like task is it like a discussion and a lot of re-evaluations is there like yeah. a timeline pretty set from the beginning or is it more exploratory mm-hmm I think like every organization does it a little differently. Mm -hmm. Like for example, like what I've heard about like like Apple, for example, is that it's like very like top down. Um, although like 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 individual teams have some autonomy. Um, my sense like in Meta is that things are pretty autonomous. Um, people can uh, people can just like go build something that they want to build, like an individual engineer or maybe like a PM and like a small group of people. Um, they can just go like try something that they have an inclination that's like this is gonna work, and then they're they get some like time and some leeway to like build that thing, and then eventually, obviously, you have to show value. Like you can't just be building something that's like useless like forever. Um, so okay, so coming back to your question, it was um like how to go about this journey, like this product development journey. Yeah. Basically, like, yeah, like how to, I guess your question was about autonomy, like if, if, if I want to clarify it. As well, but really how does one of the most successful companies approach mm. the design yeah. of a product? I see, yes. The development of a product. Yeah. Again, like this is me speaking a little bit out of my areas of like expertise sure. um but this is like my my personal my personal opinion um i think it just suits like the company that you build differently like for example like i worked in um like systems for ai for a while and what that means is um you know building like better algorithms that run faster on chips like for ai so like you know your recommendation model or your um your large language model or something like runs faster and that ultimately saves you money or decreases like your product latency like whatever it is um and like what works well for like a growth oriented like social like software company might not work as well for like a chip company um for example like chip companies have a much longer timeline like they need to ship something maybe every like two years um or longer and uh in the, in those places like it should be 
top down. And like anecdotally, I've heard um, that, yeah, like, you know, like even in like a single company, for example, like Google, like you have um, orgs like with different, like, cause, cause these companies are so big. Like my, another like aside is like, my opinion is like, if you're working at like a big company, the difference between two teams is much larger than like the average, than the difference between the averages of the two company, like of the two companies. So if you took like the average of Meta and you took the average of like Google, they're honestly like very similar. Like the experience, like the day-to-day work is like probably very similar on average. But if you look at like the spread of the different teams, it's like very different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a note, like, so this is like what something I say to people who like want to work at these like large companies. It's, I think it's more important to find the right team within a large company. Team, um, team culture. Yeah. Then, then focus too much on like the company itself. Like obviously they work on different kinds of products. So like yeah. if you if you only care about one kind versus the other, you should pick. But yeah. um but yeah, so what I was saying is like about different orgs, like I've heard that like for example, like Google Cloud um has like a certain maybe like more um okay, actually I, I can't completely say this. It could be more top down, it could be like more bottoms up. Um, but like I can say for sure that like chip orgs, like within the large companies. Um, they need to be more top down, and like sometimes um, that can clash with also like the more um, greedy approach that you take with like quickly iterating software products. Like, like for micro, like when you say chip, you mean like microchip production? Like microchip production, yeah. Like so, say like Google for example has like a big org that's now like very strategically important for them, which builds like TPUs, mm-hmm. um, which is like tensor processing units. There are chips that. Um, they're like the NVIDIA, like GPUs, you can run fast AI on them. And, uh, it's like one of their strategic assets, like to winning, like the whole, like AI war, um, stuff, but, um, building an organization is there requires like a lot of vision, like top-down vision. I think it's not as data-driven because you don't have that data. Like you're not optimizing, like in these like two week cycles where you have like a ton of users and you're getting tons of feedback and you're just like optimizing that. Um, and those, like, you kind of have to see, like, like the thing with the like, AI chip startups is basically like, you need to see where the AI models will be two years from now and start building like now for that. So you need to be able to basically like see it coming. Yeah. Um, and so it's almost like a, it's kind of similar to startups, like in that way where you need to like have that vision and just build it. Yeah. Um, whereas like for like Google search or like meta, like, you know, the big apps like Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can like really rely on this more like data driven, like fast iteration, um, kind of thing, but you just need to watch more for like getting stuck in local optima. Um, if you just like greedily optimize like every, like, you know, short period of time, local optima. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just like, yeah, I mean, I mean like the definition of local optima for people, um, is just like a if you like greedily optimize, like you'll get to a certain place and it might not be as good as you could be if you did like a search throughout the whole like space of possible ways to like build that product or do the thing. Because like you might optimize for a metric or a certain set of metrics that just makes it really hard to find the sweet spot over the overall. Yes. Yes. Um, and I think this is also where like culture plays an important role because, um, yeah, like before I said about like Meta has like a somewhat bottoms up culture. Um, I think this has been important in the past 
And again, like I'm kind of hearing about this because I, I wasn't in Meta at Meta in like the really old days, but um but it's like keeping that entrepreneurial strip spirit alive um and having people who can have that autonomy to like go off and build their own thing, like with that longer term, like maybe more like globally optimal vision, right? And like more likely than not, their product won't or whatever they build like won't be that useful. But sometimes it'll be, you know, like the a thousand X kind of like, it just ends up like catching fire basically. So it's sort of like the VC model where you want to encourage like a hundred bets or a thousand bets and like the five, like ones that actually work, like pay for and more like the 900 like plus other bets that um, did not work. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we've gone over like a couple of things here. Like it's... um sort of like culture it's like depending on your product and like how much i think the the main thing is like how much feedback you get is uh is the main driver for what kind of um cadence and like and how much vision is required like for your product um and then i think you also asked as well as about like how one builds this experience um yeah i don't have a good answer for that i think it's just um you should just go join a company or I guess try to build something yourself. But the important thing is feedback. So um, for me personally, I joined like a big company out of school because I thought the mentorship was important and the feedback was important. And like maybe there's a counterfactual world where like I'm, you know, I did a startup immediately out of school and I'm like a billionaire today or something. Uh, it's possible. But uh, looking back, I felt like I didn't know anything. Um, and I don't regret and being at the big company, even though like particularly at like say like Stanford, um, there's a lot of people who are very entrepreneurial and uh, they're all like very gung-ho about startups. But sometimes I think it's good to um, just yeah, like build something under the wing of someone else. And uh, whether like in whatever role you are, whether you're like a designer or an engineer or like something else, um, taking ownership in like that product roadmap and like really looking at those at either user metrics that are aggregated for you or like looking at individual user stories um, helps you build that intuition like that. And, and it's important to have that feedback loop of like looking at user feedback and like building something for them and then seeing how the user feedback changes over time. That helps you grow um, as a product person. Yeah. It sounds to me like your decision to join Meta was very much driven by where can you get the most intense version of learning yes. for becoming a better developer, becoming a better mm -hmm. part of a team. As you said, like the bottom-up culture yeah. is important to the communication, yes. not just executing, but really being part of the process. Yes. Um, yeah, I think it comes down to feedback. And like the two kinds are basically from the customers and from the team. Um, and you're from the team, obviously it's just go find the best people in your space and go work with them. And at least in my experience, like working with like some of the best AI people, I think I learned more. Um, yeah, I learned more than like, in, like half a year than I would have learned in like two years, like anywhere else. So it was like much, much faster. Um, and then like now, like, and I only recently started working on a, uh, on like a real, like on a product, um, but um, yeah, like having feedback from customers is very important uh, because 
yeah, like if I had done a startup and say like I had no users for a year, I think it would have been like an interesting exercise in like learning how to pivot and build really quickly. But at the end of the day, like you still don't really learn that much about what users want. Like you've just kind of like walked through the space of what users don't want, but like that's like a much bigger space than what users want. And so it's nice to like join a company that has already like found that. I mean, that's just product market fit, right? Yeah. Um, but I guess in this framework, right, if you think of like what users want versus what they don't want as like two of these regions, there's like one's like a very big region, like which is what users don't want. And what they want is this like little small, like sort of region, like in there. Small island. Yeah, it's like a small ocean. island. Like, yeah, maybe it's even better to like be at a place that sort of, because maybe like the big tech companies have sort of like, they're like right in the center of like what users want. Like they've, but it's nice to sort of like be at that boundary. Maybe the best learning, I'm just speculating here, like is at the boundary of like what users want versus what they don't want. And this would just be like a company that's finding product market fit. Um, so you can see that process of going from like one side of the boundary to the other side. And maybe that's also something that's missing at big tech companies, unless you're working on like a new product, um, in which case, like, I think that's also a very like exciting experience and something that um, people should consider as like a good opportunity. Yeah. Your, your team is mm -hmm. relatively new, right? Like two years ago, it probably didn't exist yet. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I work on the generative AI team at Meta. Um, we do some of the uh, large language model um, products that came out recently. And um, yeah, like it was formed quite recently. Uh, I can't say like too much yeah. about like the particulars of what we're working on besides like what's public. Um, but yeah, like I, I think like the the general vibe is like, um, I think the learnings that you have at like these kinds of teams in in large tech companies is like some of the best um, that you can have, uh, and like seeing and actually like we're in that stage right like because um, you know we're not at that like three billion person scale yet but we're like finding um, you know we're like building new things and but we're like cro trying we're crossing that bound we're like on that boundary right like not like right in the center where you know you like maybe you're like if you're like google search right like you like kind of figure out everything and you're um obviously there's like a lot of like small areas right like google search for example like there are a lot of small things you don't think about but um like for example like there's probably like a like one a product manager that figured out you should put like the weather like when people search weather yeah. you should put like the weather at the top of the yeah. search bar um, and those are like these small things that drive a lot of like traffic and revenue ultimately. And so like you have to cross that boundary. Um, yeah. So a lot of boundary crossing, like from the don't want to want region. Those are like the best, uh, those are the best learnings. When they, you joined, how old was your team when you joined it? Um, zero months old zero month old so yeah i joined it at the very start did they what, what i'm curious about is if you're management at facebook and you are like okay there's this new occurring technology we have to act now we have to build a team that mm -hmm. works on x yeah do you then just go around and based on your experience the people you have interacted with select certain people and then maybe fill the rest of the gaps with just like a public announcement of hey you apply or is it like mainly mm -hmm. 
just like point of con- like people you know, people that the manager knew, and you just try to create your team like that? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, I don't have a very exciting answer for this. I feel like it's just like you hire from, yeah, like you hire internally, um, you hire some people externally. Um, yeah, I think you're just trying to find, I think like if I describe my teammates though, like they're all like very fast moving people. Um, and I think like that was something that we really tried to find, like people who are willing to like build things and ship quickly. And it's just like more of a startup mindset. So um, you basically, the way you found out about it was just like an announcement that people are, that the um, positions open or did someone approach you? I was somewhat grandfathered into it because oh, like okay. I had been working in, in large language models for a little while. Um, in research. Yeah, in the research, yes. Um, but uh, yeah, like, you know, like you, you also hire from like elsewhere in the company yeah. as well. It's interesting because it's, in that case, especially like everyone, including management and big tech companies were surprised when OpenAI released ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. And then it just created this FOMO in a lot of sense. But also, I would say, like, for Meta, more like opportunity, because mm-hmm. you didn't really want to compete with a non-public yeah. um, foundational model. Yeah. So it's really about the applicational side. Like, you already have the application, you already mm-hmm. have the user. How do you create more value? Yeah. So really, you you need specific kind of people for that. Yeah. You really got to be really good and really fast. You can't, like, normal recruiting cycles are, what, half a year, mm-hmm. nine months, so even yeah. longer. Yeah, so you need to find people very quickly. Yeah. And, and that's also very hard. Um, another benefit of, yeah, like, big tech companies is, like, how easy it is to, like, move around and, like, find new opportunities. And conversely, like, for, like, say, if you're a manager, like, trying to build something new, like, yeah, like, pulling people internally um versus like yeah at a small company like i'm helping out some um folks that uh like some folks that have recently raised like just some friends who have made startups and um yeah like i'll just like connect them with like 50 people that i know uh but hiring is still very hard um for them it's very slow so hard to spin up like these new kinds of things are they out there in the bay they are, yeah, pretty much all of them. I mean, it's mostly AI startups. So, uh, and you know, if you're an AI startup, I think most of them are here. Uh, yeah, such a fast, fascinating spot out here because the density of mm-hmm. developers, yeah, is the insane. De- yeah, so if you're like a product person or someone with an idea, like definitely one of the best places to to find people, and people are the most important thing for sure. Like. I see people that I that I know who are just like so strong. Like Yeah, they're just like so good. And um like if I were doing a startup, I'd like really want to have them on my team because I think like it would be the difference between like success and failure. Yeah. Um to have these people. And like sometimes I actually think that startups I do kind of see where VCs come from where they say like it almost doesn't matter. Like obviously your initial idea like needs to be like reasonable. But my sense is like, it's more like the world has a lot of problems that need to be solved. And like, if you just get a big enough group of smart, like this, this is the hypothesis, but like, yeah. if you have a big enough group of like smart people who can like produce useful things, um, if they just like, if you just put them in a room and they work on stuff, like eventually customers will come along and like, say like, I have lots of problems, like I'll pay this group of people money to like do it just because they're like the only 
group of people who can do it. Yeah. So it's more um So so like how, how like I'm trying to get like an emotional feeling across, but um you mean like for the grasping this founder market founder problem fit? Um yeah, basically. It's it's more like if you just have a strong enough group of people together, like a problem will come along. And and like the strong people will just like when they work on it, the market will go like aha. Um <laughs> like you just let's let's do let's use that. Um and I think it's because I see like internally like cuz big tech companies are sort of like a little microcosm of like, you know, like different products getting built for like different teams and like different people use it. But it's like you do trust strong people and like what they built. Um and it's almost like no matter um and you'll go to them first for like the things that need that you need to be built. Um so sometimes yeah, like I kind of see where people are coming from when they say that. just like get like a strong team of people together and because their execution velocity is so fast, um even if they get off on the wrong foot initially, like they'll beat out everyone else eventually just because like no one can move as fast. Um and the market will wants like the best product and so they'll pick the team that can get there like the quickest and the best. Um, and so the market will like force that team into finding a problem that is good. Um, this is not like a kind of macro level, obviously as like an entrepreneur, like that's not exactly how it is. <laughs> um, but it's more like, um, yeah, I just feel like there are a lot of examples of, of this. Who comes to mind? I think like, for example, um, like. There's uh Mistral, which is a um AI startup founded by like a couple of um folks from uh from Fair and DeepMind. Like it's in Europe. They're basically like they they're trying to be the foundation model provider um for for Europe, which I think is like a really good play because um like they're relying on the um they're frankly relying on like some of the geopolitics, maybe is like like part that's part of the strategy, right? Because like Europe doesn't really have um, that many like AI startups like compared to the US. And so, you know, it's just a big untapped market. And indeed, like, you know, in a world where um, countries are becoming more um, kind of segregated and like they're not communicating as much with each other. And like maybe if the US is becoming like less of a um, like preferred technology provider for Europe. Yeah. Because like you know, like right now, like most of the big tech companies like in the U.S. like work freely in Europe, but Europe is also enacting some laws around yeah. this, like where they want things that are like European homegrown. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Like you know, it it's just a world where where you need that. Um, and so there's less competition is one thing. But I also think like I'm quite bullish on them because I do think they're like I, I've worked with like the the folks from there from from Fair, and I just think they're just very very strong. And it's sort of like, like obviously they need to produce, like they need to build something, but um, sort of um, because they're strong and they're well known, like they'll put out some things that are like reasonably good, and the market will just like naturally gravitate towards them, and they'll get like the best feedback, and they can also execute the quickest, um, and so they'll just like win, um, so. Again, okay, I also, like, I, I'm saying a lot of disclaimers today, but I say this as someone who does not have a successful startup. Um, but it's like, a, I think, like, talking to VCs, um, particularly when they look at, at it at, like, a more macro scale, um, this is, like, the feeling that I get. Because it, it comes down to, 
like execution velocity and like having the best people. Um, and like, yes, like, you know, the CEO needs to have some like grand vision and they need to like bring people to that cause, but maybe it's not as important to have like that killer idea as people say it is. It's sort of just work frantically enough, like something, something useful will come out of it. Um, is kind <laughs> of the, is kind of the vibe. So going against, I mean, like going against this initial thought that a lot of entrepreneurs have of I have to find the perfect idea, I yeah. have to find the right idea. You're more the thing you observe is get great enough people together under the goal mm. of creating something. And you obviously you need something to yeah. get people's minds working mm -hmm. and committed enough to do yeah. it. But then you just pivot freely until yeah. we find something that sticks. Yeah, I think the examples are just like, you know, not both, well, I guess Google had like, well, there was like Yahoo before them, right? Yeah. But but they had a great idea, which was, you know, they pay drink and so they succeeded. But like, you know, Facebook, I think, like any, like not anyone, but like many people could build like the initial, um, the initial Facebook. And there were also addition, like additional social networking sites before then. Um, but I think it's like, it's fine for there to be competition. Because like if you imagine like startups as like a race where you know you have this like final, like you monopolize the market, you have like ultimate product market fit, and then at the start where you have like nothing, um it's it's like a it's a marathon. It's not yeah. like like yeah, startups are a marathon. And so if you have like the best people and you start a little bit later, maybe then like say like there's a couple people who first mover advantage. Um but it's like, imagine you have like three racers, like you have two racers that maybe like go a little bit sooner, but their people are not as good. And so they just move slower. Um, and then you have like a group that starts like six months later and they're like competitors in the market and people yeah. are like, oh, like, how are you different? Uh, and maybe they're not different, but they just like build something and they get some feedback and they can just like run faster yeah. than the other ones. And they add more things and like they improve faster. Uh, and of course, there's like lock-in, right? And like, this is why people, I think, are always looking for moats, like in startups. They're always like, I need to get some like product that has a lot of lock-ins so people like can't leave. Um, I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to, like, I think lock-in is, it is important, but it's sometimes like not that big of a factor and people will switch to the better thing. And so even if you start late and you start it with like a copycat, but over time, as you build like a better and better thing, um, people will just switch over. And that comes down to having the best people that build be, it. What would be a great example for a strong lock-in right now? Because we've talked about, I mean, Facebook, I guess, like with the social the network there, there's effect. There's a network effect, right? Yeah. But Google, for example, has almost no lock-in. Well, their lock-in comes from the feedback that they get from, from search. Like they have more people than anyone using it. Yeah. And their long tail, well, they have, so they have the best people, like yeah. they have the most number of people. They have, um, they have the most like uh they have like great infrastructure like it's just like a a gathering of yeah maybe they don't have as, as explicit of a lock-in like so like search is something that um there's no nothing like truly unique about it. it's not like a network effect where it's like the person the other my friends are only on this network you see people switch between search engines yeah quite a lot whenever something cool like do you remember ecosia it was yes, I do remember search browser plants trees yeah, yeah. for their searches, and it's like I just have like Google on my phone and Ecosia on my laptop or the other way around. And there's like no 
like the quality of search is different. Yeah. So I guess this is, but I don't know if that qualifies as a lock-in that you just like are the best performant yeah. product on the market. Mm-hmm. But like it's fairly easy to just have both on because there's just no no investment, right? You just put in yeah to website and you go there and use it and not much more. Yeah, even preferable sometimes that when I felt like. Google had too much of a profile of mine mm. that it was too kind of like restricting what I would get. Right. That I would like to use DuckDuckGo instead or right. Brave Search mm-hmm. that just don't create profiles of you. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. But like network effect, for example, what else would be a good lock in? Um, I think, I mean, Microsoft and like the B2B space. Yeah. Um, you know, like once you have like all of your machines are running windows and yeah. all of your processes are using Excel and, yeah. uh, it's a bit hard to like get everyone in your company yeah. to switch to the other things. So I think like B2B is something that a lot of like startup founders actually like a lot because yeah. like, um, maybe the contracts are hard to get, but you have like nice, like recurring revenue and like a good lock-in yeah. after that. That makes sense. I'm always like my, my instantaneously looking at B2C because that's just like what I like to think about consumer yeah. product. Makes it a little harder. Like the first thing I had was like, okay, you have to create a profile and maybe you have to fill out a lot of stuff. It's not a high barrier, but mm-hmm. it is a significant enough barrier that a lot of people hate to change if they just, the only thing is to, is to create a new account. Right. Yeah, I think in the consumer space, they're definitely much less, right? And like, it's oftentimes like you need to be able to reach a certain scale. Yeah. Um, cause even like in social media, right? Like there, there are many social networks that have reached like million person scale, like, like million person scale. And that's actually quite small. Like nowadays, I feel like for like a social network with meta um, being around. Well, yeah, yeah but like, but there are many billion, <laughs> there are like multiple billion or like hundreds of million social networks, right? There's like Snapchat, yeah. there's TikTok, there's, um, uh, I guess there's like WeChat in China, which is like definitely like multi-billion. Does Reddit count as a social network? Reddit, yeah, I would say Reddit counts. Oh, it's Reddit. like hundred million, but, um, Discord. Yeah. Yeah. But like lock-in is like in the, in the consumer space is always very fleeting. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's like very competitive. So, yeah. uh, you know, search and, um, and social networks, like both, I'm just thinking, what are the other categories of like consumer that, that matter in like the day to day? Um, I guess there's streaming. I don't like, there's like, I, like Netflix is, I'm, I'm just going through like the traditional, like fang quote unquote, like companies. Right. Um, Although, yeah, like, I guess I'm not a big Netflix user, like a streaming user um, myself. But yeah, I think these lock-ins are all very hard. Like the streaming space is very impacted right now. There's like HBO Max and like Disney Plus and um, yeah. Hulu. Yeah, yeah. Although I've heard a lot of them are actually like losing money and Netflix might still win out. So so it's also another example, like could go both ways. Like one is lots of competition. But also, like, maybe the network effects that you get are still, or, like, the lock-in is still good enough that um, you might still win. You just gave me a really interesting thought that I have to go after later. Because of the strikes in Hollywood, Yeah, like, a lot of the streaming platforms really 
try to outperform the others with creating more like just quantity of content. Yeah. I wonder how that will impact the race. If you just have to rely on users liking whatever is already existing. Yes. That's tough. Especially mm. if you don't hold the rights for all those different films right. and shows. Right. Maybe Netflix and Disney have the strongest position. Maybe HBO. Maybe. Know. Yeah. Kind of have to look at the data. Sure, yeah, there's going to be some interesting analysis. I think analysis. there would be something interesting. <laughs> you could use some of the data skills that you're working on. But now. Um, Crazy. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, compu- consumer, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to change my stance on that at some point. But I find B2C just more virtuous. Maybe it's that. More not, virtuous. Yeah. Maybe not. Within B2B, yeah, you help another business to be better. You help a whole sector to improve. Mm-hmm. It's like so many degrees away from an impact that I consider as as tangible. Right. Which doesn't necessarily need to be true because if you, for example, if you care about sustainability, if you make a B2B product that helps another company to emit less CO2 emissions. Mm-hmm. It's an impact on everyone, on people. Right. Um, so could be could be really cool. Maybe the thing that I always think about, because it's just so trendy and because the sums of investment are just so insane, it's just the next data management, the mm. next cloud computing, yeah. the next whatever else. Um, it's a huge field. It's still very competitive. There's but you're still saying a lot of that innovation. sustainability is like no, no, the no. next. No, no. What I'm saying yeah. is like when whenever I think about B2B, I think about a lot of like B2B startups. I think uh, about a lot of yeah. that. And I'm just like not I have like this little bit of a aversion mm. to to re- even just think it through. But especially then when it comes to like engage with it, work they are considered as an employer. Um, it's like B2C, and I don't know how you feel about it. You work in B2C, uh, but you see the advantages and disadvantages. I do. I think... Hmm, it's an interesting question, yeah. Like At least for me personally, like B2B versus B2C. Um, yeah, I think B2C is very interesting, but at the same time, like if you want to... Um, if you want to reach a certain scale of impact, like it might not like like say like it might not be exactly your vision. So so what I mean by this is um I think like consumer technology companies, like if you want to scale to like tons of people, you oftentimes need to serve like a pretty similar experience to all of them. Like you're trying to find like that average experience yeah. that's I guess with the rise of recommendation models and like, you know, like for example, like part of the reason for like the personalization like in like all the meta products is that they want to be able to like build a different product for like different people right without having to you know like build a completely different product for every person because that would be like insane engineering hours um (laughs) yeah like imagine like you know for like each even like city right like like the the growth and headcount would be insane like if you had like a different like new york thing versus i don't don't know you you could chunk up your users some way um 
yeah so so like in, in b2c it's like at least like this is in the limit right at scale like when you're building a smaller product like obviously you can just build like a smaller product and with like a million in revenue and like you know maybe it's like 100 million valuation like something small that's like really very good still and like it fulfills your life mission like that makes sense but i think like seeing this like from like a big tech company um it like like the ones that are really huge are the ones that can find something that's like uniform to everyone um but i think it's like if you're more mission driven and i think like i'm overall still like fairly mission driven like in the longer term um I think B2B makes sense because you sort of build like common infrastructure or something that's like useful to a bunch of these businesses. And the businesses in turn are building something particular for like certain segments of customers. Like you don't have as much of this like breadth of customers that you all need to serve at the same time. It's like the businesses that you work with take care of doing that um, segmentation of customers, like serving them individually. Um, so in this way, it's like B2B is almost like you can, if you find like a set of businesses to serve that you think are useful and good, then you can like be, then you can kind of be more mission driven, I guess is, is like maybe one way to think about it. It's kind of like thinking of the really big B2C companies. In the end, I guess it's based on your your business model. Like we're just thinking of Google, Meta with WhatsApp and Instagram, yeah, Amazon, um, yeah, Reddit. There's always there's always still a pretty big B two B factor. Yeah, as well. Yeah, I saw an interesting video from Andrew Ng recently. Um, and he works in AI, Stanford professor. Um, and uh, he talked about how AI for a long time has been, um, it, it's been very hard to apply it to like the long tail. Um, so there's like a long tail of problems, for example, like, you know, like, um, say like detecting weeds, like in, in a farm or something, or detecting like, you know, um, issues with like the soil or the crops or something like that, right? Um, or maybe like applying AI everywhere, like in um, in a factory. And uh, yeah, AI, like the biggest money makers has generally been like these recommendation systems that you can build with like a small group of like very talented engineers and then apply it like everywhere. Um, and something we talked about was really interesting with these new like language models is that it democratizes AI more. Like it's easier to program. Like you don't need to get this like big cohort of like very strong engineers together. Like you can maybe get someone who's maybe more non-technical and they can just like program this like large language model or like whatever foundation model um, to uh, do that task that you need. Like, you know, like check like how the status of the crops are and like someone can customize that. Um, So I think it's like something really interesting as a general trend is like tech being less about like uniform experiences versus like sort of spreading out in this like tree-like manner. It's like all the little niches that people care about because like right now, like to build any like really useful software product, you usually need to get like a big cohort of like strong engineers together and naturally to like amortize the cost of all those engineers. Like you want to build something that like applies to a lot of people um, very generally. 
but like maybe the future is more like you know like a farmer or like an individual like accountant or something like they can utilize software themselves um through like you know these more like no code ai uh ai platforms um so i think it's like another interesting part about like how tech is developing as a as a whole i guess that would really that would really change uh consumer product yeah 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 and i think it also goes for like ai right like i started not yeah, education yeah um and uh like there's so many like little obviously like you want like a teacher bot like that's like the biggest like one of the biggest things but you also have to think about like um and you can like pers personalize that for everyone but i think there's also like a lot of other like smaller use cases um that are like in the day to day that maybe don't like scale to like a billion people like like may maybe like a teacher bot scales like a billion people but uh, i'm not really thinking of any ideas right now but like imagine that like a teacher like and the teacher bot would ho hopefully would be assistive um like they could just like build tools for themselves like assistants or other things and like they're very particular like to their own classroom um yeah i think it's just like a rather interesting future like trying to democratize like intelligence almost because like computing is sort of like intelligence yeah and it's like trying to make that more and more customizable and buildable for like individual people yeah. um to create these like agents or co-pilots that can like help them with whatever is necessary like specifically for them um you're gonna like the george hotz episode at lex friedman because like there yeah. are a few topics that you touched upon that they are talking about, including democratizing intelligence, because they are like in reality that was AI is right. It gives you a lot of it's a tool yeah. to compress intelligence that you can leverage for whatever cause. And they're like or George is criticizing this argument of only the virtuous people should be allowed to wield the sort of generative AI, like that the power, uh, the models, the foundation of models, okay. it should be so restricted that it's only like one, two, three heavy regulated players, like this whole AI safety yeah. uh, topic. Uh, because you don't want the wrong people to have so much intelligence. And his argument is like, no, 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 you want to open source it, you want to make it as distributed as possible, you want everyone to be able to use the same thing. Because mm. otherwise, you will, with enough time, run into the situation where only the wrong person have the, I the see. intelligence tool. It's kind of to, a bet on humanity, right? Like, if everyone has it and you assume that humanity as a whole is, like, good yeah. on average, um, then, like, the good outweighs the bad. It's based on the assumption that a lot more people are good or interested in no harm than in harm. Yeah. And also like the experiment or kind of like what came up was a reference to we have the power now for almost 80 years to annihilate all of humanity or all right. life on Earth. And no one has done it. So, but, but that's a counter argument, isn't it? It's, like, uh, it's been restricted in the case of nuclear weapons. Somewhat successfully. Yeah. 
I mean, it's not like every every human on Earth could have their own little nukes. Yeah, but it's a good amount of countries mm. with at least temporarily a lot of instable or not very virtuous characters with uh, right. the opportunity to press the button, and mm. yet, like, no one was, no one has. There's enough barrier. Um, which, in my opinion, is not the strongest argument to say, like, that's why you can freely give all the tools to everyone. But living in a world where if you only have the two options, either you open sources or it stays with one, two, or three companies. I don't think giving it to one, two, or three companies and restricting everyone else to access and inside, I feel like this is too close to Brave New Worlds mm. scenarios. I'm not. I'm not up for that. I rather take yeah. the bet on democratizing it. I see. Yeah, I mean, I'm somewhat in that camp. Um, Do you work for a company? I work for a company <laughs> that is very open source, like, uh, heavy, right? I mean, they are the uh, forerunner, the front yeah, runner. Yeah, it's like the front runner in open democratizing source. Democratizing. Um, yeah, which I think is like, yeah, yeah. So I think right now it's correct. Like, like I, I agree with, like, you know, Marcus talked about it, this on like other similar like um, podcasts and stuff. But um, yeah, like, you know, we're not really close to AGI yet. Um, or, Although some would. If you read certain blogs or certain newsletters or certain papers, I read yeah. a paper the other day of a researcher I really respect from, uh, I built like one of my, um, a paper that I published on, on his technology. And yeah. he wrote like an analysis on like how close GPT-4 is to AGI. And he kind of like called it like the first signs of AGI. Oh, yeah. Is it from Microsoft Research? It was like yeah, the first, the, uh, Sparks of AGI, I think, or something yeah. like that. Mark, yeah. uh, Marco Ribeiro is his mm. name. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, obviously there's many camps of thought, but, um, yeah. So I think it's, it's good overall. I mean, like I, I'm saying this in hindsight, but I think it was good to open source it. It gives like a lot of people, um, like the power to play with these models and to like learn about them. And I think that education is like, one of the most important aspects, if not the most important, because, um, you know, these people, you know, assuming like with, with that same assumption that like on average, the people are like good and they want to do good. Um, even in the future, if things should be kept closed, like we'll have more people who are capable of like improving the models and like doing well. So it's sort of having like this education in a safe environment. Yeah. Um, is important rather than like keeping it like super super closed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in the future, I don't know. Like that, I'd have to reserve judgment on. Yeah. Like there are obviously cases where like things go poorly. I mean, like the, the the part where the assumption breaks down is like, like obviously humanity as a whole like is like good. But if like like in the case of nuclear weapons, it's like one one bad actor outweighs a billion good actors. You know, there being a good actor means not using the the nuclear weapon and um being a bad actor means blowing like up a billion people so um yeah that i don't know i mean i'll I'll leave it to you can just scroll twitter if you want to uh, <laughs> if you want to see the x yes <laughs> scroll like all these websites if you want to see the debate about it but 
I think I said this in your last podcast, but it's sort of like we won't know until we know. Um, yeah. So I think, yeah, currently it's just like educate people as much as we can until we get something a little more um, spicy. I guess I'll use the word. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You said today that you're never eating spice again. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid it. Yeah, it, it feel like it is a little disruptive to my comfort and also energy. Mm -hmm. So trying to try to stay away from it. It's pleasure, but it's a uh, it's also not a pleasure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard because I like so many cuisines that are spicy. Um, yeah. Restrictive, but um, overall, I feel better. Spicy is still a great word. It is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that the whole tech, the whole generative AI. You called it. A war early. I know that's what a lot of people on the, the war on generative AI. Um, yeah, it's like you again find a lot of that narrative on X on mm. threads. Yes, on Reddit. Do you really feel like it's a war? Or as no, I mean, it's, it's all in good. Like uh, I think it's mostly in good faith. Yeah, like you know, people are just arguing. Because they want the best for. Okay, I take that back a little bit. I mean, <laughs> I, I, well, like it is in good faith, but like it's um, you know, like when people are like feel like they're really deciding or like at least giving an opinion on like the future of humanity, it gets like heated, and you know, it's um, and it, it might not be as good faith in the sense that like they empathize with like the other side as much. Um, and I think this is true for like a lot of things, like in politics, for example, like people are arguing in good faith, like in, in a way, but they're also like maybe not empathizing as much with the other side yeah. as they should. Um, but yeah, currently, I mean, as the community grows, I mean, it's already exploded, like probably 10 X, a hundred X, like what it was before. But, um, as it grows, like, yeah, maybe we'll see, um, you know, these, like, like more camps popping up like in 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 like the argument and uh in the debate and maybe it'll it'll probably become like more uh unhinged i don't know uh yeah <laughs> not but, a great word <laughs> yeah um yeah for now I, I i would like to think that the debate is like a respect for a fairly respectful debate i think people have I think people are mostly humble, like no one really knows. And I think everyone tries to believe that. They're yeah. like, I don't really know, but like this is my general position. Yeah. Um, I guess the only people who can be really sure are the folks who are the most risk averse. Um, because like you can just be you can just say, like, even if there's like a point zero zero one percent chance of like the destruction of all of humanity. Like we should just be as safe as possible and, you know, try to push out like AGI development by like a thousand years. Um, so I guess those are the only folks that can truly be like very sure of their position. Cause like at this point, like I say, you know, like maybe AGI won't get here for like another 20 years or, and we should open source things, but I can't actually be like so sure of that. Um, like maybe it'll get here faster than that. No one really knows. You're considering that it might not get here at all. 
It's possible. I think it's unlikely though. Like I I don't think there's a reason that like the human brain is so hard to replicate. Um I think it's unlikely that that we will not ever get an AGI. Let's maybe get a little bit more specific. AGI, when we talk about AGI, we mean the abilities of the human brain with the sheer unlimitedness of computing power. Mm. Um, I mean, it doesn't need to have unlimited computing power. Like, I, I think, and this is actually something interesting I was talking about with um, another friend, but um, I think the standard that like some of these like ChatGPT type chatbots are held to is a bit like high. It's actually much higher. Well, obviously, like you hold Google search to a higher standard than like a person, right? Like, like no person is like an all-knowing fount of knowledge. But um, I think the bar for AGI is just like it doesn't need to know everything, but it's like processing capabilities are similar to a human. And if it has like infinite knowledge, like on top of that, then that's like a nice plus. And that puts it firmly in like the superhuman point of view because if you had like a human with just like normal human capacities but they knew like everything um they'd probably be able to make connections between data and information that like no individual human yeah. can make what i find an in illustrative example is currently as a human you know one plus one is two not because You've seen it a hundred thousand times because you understand one as a unit in yeah. a defined system and two times one unit is two, which is two units. Right. Whereas as far as I've heard, LLM researchers, people that have a much better understanding of the technology than I do, they're of the opinion that if the LLM says one plus one is two, it's or at least before you put it as hard code in it, because it has seen that that's the majority uh, of occurrences. Yeah. Which means it's in that case not reasoning, it's right. coping, it's looking at a population and taking the most probable, probable outcome. Yeah. So for the AGI, we would assume reasoning. Yes. Would Although... understand one plus one is two. Yeah. Although I would say like LMs do like a very weak form of reasoning. It's sort of just not very robust. Like for, for humans, like, yeah, we do have these like concepts in our head and you mash them together in this like very discrete way. And for LMs, like you don't really ever have that kind of discreteness. Like everything is a probability. So in mash, it might mash like one plus one equals two. Um, and, but you could like just take the limit where it's like, it knows like, it just puts like the weight, like the probability weight entirely on two. Basically, it's like it knows that like this is an entity and this is another entity, and it creates this like graphical, like sort of um like this graph of like this chain of logic, basically, like in its you know, little working memory. Um, the issue with LLMs is like, you know, if they decay over time, like whereas humans probably like keep sort of like a hundred percent, like like they keep this like chain of logic and they're able to like roll it out over a long period of time but llms like if because like they're so like more probabilistic like if they put a certain like the weight that they put on like that two might only be like 80 yeah. percent 
And so if you roll out that like 80% over like many sequences, um, over like a long period of time, like many, many steps, then it'll get it wrong. Like eventually it'll be like 80% times 80%. But there is probably some kind of like weak form of reasoning that's happening in the LLM. But the LLM, I guess I'm really theorizing here. Like this is also out, but um, I feel like it doesn't have like a way to sort of like lock certain things as like axioms. Like it's like it's it's putting like 80% like something that should be a hundred percent is 80%, but it really should just take that 80% like lock it to a hundred and then it would be able to do logic basically. Mm -hmm. Does this make sense? Yeah. So yeah. you're basically saying that because it is making a probabilistic assumption about something that is true. Yeah. A large enough scale, like, like repet repetition in the end, it will make a wrong yeah. decision. Yeah, like, like maybe if it sees something like one plus one equals two, like it should eventually, like say one plus one equals two, it's like like it sees it like a hundred thousand times in its training data, in that the likelihood of that becomes like very very high. It might be like ninety five percent, but it should like have a circuit in it that when when the probability gets high enough, you just like lock it to a hundred. Um, round up to certain basically, yeah. I mean, this is like a very very rough idea yeah um but it's also like, prone for bias but yeah you yeah, optimize for one bias over the other yeah exactly right but but it's because you learn a probabilistic way like you can't maybe it's difficult to get this kind of um sort of like axiom based like logical chain you know whereas like you know if you have like a computer like proof solver like you know yeah. they, well i mean this is regular computing like you don't yeah. lose bits for like random reasons yeah well except sometimes you do for like <laughs> for for like hardware reasons but that's like beyond the scope right um but um yeah so maybe that like i i do i do think like one of the core things that needs to be figured out is like lm reasoning and like long-term reasoning um and like and meta like yon Kuhn has like posted a lot about like these sort of um i've not read these papers but uh there's like these like energy-based models i think like ebms um huh. and so i recommend reading those papers if you're interested in because like he exactly talks about this problem of like of over a long period, like over a long sequence, like the model will eventually get mm -hmm. things wrong or hallucinate. And like, maybe that's not something that can be solved with the current structure. Um, and so maybe something needs to be figured out for like long-term planning mm -hmm. and like uh, sort of tree-based, tree-based reasoning. Yeah. I'll look into that. Yeah. It's all there's all like there you see problems, you see sometimes things you just don't understand. Mm -hmm. You make assumptions of where things might go in the future. Yeah. What are your thoughts on where this all might go? If we would dare to speculate. Yeah. I mean this is a very broad question, right? It's like there's so many sectors. I guess let me pick something. Um I guess like the two things I'm interested in are like the future of like computing and the future of uh I think I talked about healthcare maybe also as well last time. So I think these are these are the two things. Um the future of computing, one of my friends like talked to me about this, um, and I kind of believe it is like, and I see this also at work, is like if you had um you know, like everyone knows nowadays, like the LLM calls are very expensive and it's hard to like run 
it's hard to like use LLMs like everywhere that you would like to, because like, you know, it takes time to to get back responses, right? Um, but in a world where LLM like like calls to an LLM are very cheap, you could imagine like replacing um like the CPU of a computer, like a CPU of a computer at the end of the day, all it does is like you have like an like an arithmetic um like L- ALU, which is like an arithmetic logic unit, I think. And you know, it does like it takes inputs like ands and ors and um addition and subtraction and multiplication and it spits out like new numbers um and you're just like doing this at like a very fast large scale with your programs um but you can imagine a future like where instructions to your cpu are replaced with like calls to your llm and so like your llm takes like a prompt and it does like much bigger chunks of computation like a computation is you know you take your input data set or you well not data set but you take your input and you like reformat it or tra- or transform it in a way that's like very human-like, right? And it happens like very quickly. Um, so I'm kind of imagining a future where programming is all just like you can imagine define like a programming language that like instead of having a for loop, it has like a I don't know, like a like and it just has like LLM transformation like blocks basically, and like you can stack them together like Lego blocks to get like whatever um, functionality that you want, and you don't need to be so nitty gritty. Like a for loop is just you can just say like to the LLM, like loop over these things and do this thing and like do whatever, right? Um, and that might allow for like something that, like something I talked about before, which was like this democratization of like AI and really computing in general to every individual use case. Because one of the chief barriers to that is like the cost of engineers and engineering time, and like you need these people who are like very nitty gritty and like like think about like code and um. But in the future, like if everyone can write such like AI-based programs um, that you know get what they need done, then um, obviously there's like big challenges here around um, like reliability um, and reasoning as well. Um, but um, yeah, it's like well, this is I guess an intermediate future. I guess the long-term future is like the AI just does everything. Like you don't need to like chain these blocks together. This is still assuming like the AI can't do like. 10 or 20 steps yeah. of of computation like just by itself like it'll get it wrong at some point like so you need a human kind of overseeing it in these blocks right and you sort of have these boundaries between blocks that are um that create like more reliability or like something like that um so i think that's like maybe an intermediate future i think it's very interesting if you can kind of like program in all like llm calls um like an interesting interesting world that i can't really imagine like what what your programs would look like um and then another way to think about it is if you had like an army of people that were it was able to like do things quickly and you could just like route you could just create like a program that's like route this document to this person and then send it to the next person who does something else and maybe they're specialists and you have like lms with different specialties and it's like it becomes almost more like org structures and like yeah. it's like management, right? So um it's like how do you get the flow of information right? And like how do you make sure that final output is reliable? Um that's interesting that you're yeah. mentioning it right now. I had a conversation with someone about um a guy, his name is Tal. It's a it's a researcher in Israel. Yeah. And he developed a multi-agent system um, and in his case it had some i'm butchering the story but it had some 
connection with educational space. He basically in his in his model he puts in a teacher, a student, and a planner, and just gives them a lot of complex problems to figure out. And then just looks. I mean, there there needs to be certain kind of metrics how you evaluate each of those outputs because sure. it's just a lot and a lot of iteration. But apparently the outputs are really really interesting mm. just with a specialized kind of in that case maybe it's in in terms of like kind of like a maybe a socratic dialogue right. that's why you have the student and the teacher but i wanted to to look up um his company and the, the way he's doing that because that's a that's a very interesting idea because like the the most straightforward assumption is you have one computer it does other reasoning yeah like a person sitting alone in a room but that's not how humans do their best thinking either. Right. You have different people who are yeah, able they communicate. to yeah. have different positions within time space, different experiences. And that makes all the difference in, in uh, solution finding and problem solving. Yeah. And why not do exactly the same now with computers that can effectively communicate? And communication means trigger. Right and trigger means different flow of ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes I think like humans are sort of one. Like if you look at the Earth as a whole, humans like if, if you're an alien, you came and like you didn't you thought of humans as like ants, but, like the Earth as a whole is sort of like one big intelligence. Yeah. Basically, like we're all communicating and like if you kind of consider an intelligence like any entity that can make like quote unquote like intelligent actions. Um, and like sometimes I have this like thought experiment of. Like, like, what? When would um a world? Uh, how should I phrase this? So, okay, you could have two worlds. Like, one is the world that we live in today, where like people have like their small brains living in like their skulls, and like we just communicate to like transfer ideas. And there's a lot of inefficiency that comes from that because like, you know, to get something done, like you can be blocked by just not having some information that someone else has. And they have to know when to tra transmit it to you. And like this whole like routing stuff is like quite hard. Um, or you could just live in a world where you have um, either like a hive mind, like where everyone had access to the same information or, um, or just like imagine you have like one person with all the information. They could just like do everything, right? Um, and my original thought was like that, like the world where everyone had all shared information would just be better. But it seems that like some what what some of these models are telling us now is that the um the computation of like having all that information put into one model requires greater and greater capacity, but it, it gets harder and harder to extract that information as well, like from the model, because like you know as the parameter size increases for these models, like the um the energy and like the time like increases, um so. Like biologically, there could be an argument for that, like the best performing species is one that like does split up its brain power, like in in a similar way that humans do does distributed intelligence. Yeah, it's like a distributed intelligence, right? Like where things are local and like different parts of it specialize, um, rather than sort of having this like one big soup of knowledge, basically. Yeah, it's like a random thought experiment I've done like in the past. Um, before really thinking about AI, but AI just kind of gives us like compelling argument for like maybe the distributed intelligence way is not is like an interesting way to go. 
Um, so maybe that's like one future where you have like many AIs and the AIs all do something different and you chain them together and you basically build like big societies. So um, of AIs that all talk to each other and do stuff. Fascinating thought. Yeah. And then we can also talk about healthcare, but um, yeah, I think you're also interested in education, um, like for AI, I mean, that, like naturally. So um, actually, yeah, before I talk about like other stuff, like let me actually turn it to you. Like what's the, um, what are your thoughts now on on healthcare and like the future of it? Sorry, not healthcare, education. education. Yeah. <laughs> That's an ongoing debate. And I mean, the last nine months just put a lot of assumptions on uh, upside down. There's a there's an interesting thought. So I was always a proponent from for individualizing learning and learning journeys, like with the assumption that every student is different and every comes into an educational system with different levels, different ability to process, and given by environmental factors, just doesn't react the same on the same lesson, the same input you give the student. Uh, just this input, every student is the same model, output just doesn't apply. Right. Also because there are just so many other inputs, so much other noise, if we want to break it down to that. Uh, so I was a fan of like individualizing learning. There is like a whole area of like learning analytics, learning platforms, massive open online courses to kind of explore that, have some success, don't have some success. Um, and now with LLMs, you have this opportunity of making it so personalized, making it so individualized, but also so open for feedback. Right. As you said, you can't change things. If your interface is language, mm -hmm. all you have to add is one word or take a word away. And the output changes a lot. Right. That's beautiful. Might not be the most efficient thing because requires you to experiment but like just the experiments i'm doing on myself right now with tutoring having gpt tutoring me in different subjects yeah. it's very promising however there's a thought i was introduced to this week and it is the atomization of the classroom referring to if every student at every time not only is on a different level, but also progresses on a different level that is so significantly different and fastly changing that it's almost impossible for the educator, for the facilitator to assess which level the student is at right now. Mm. You cannot Testing becomes give very hard. them support. Right. Testing is hard, but also just to help them to scaffold and to yeah assess them in the end and if you really want to work towards an equitable education system where everyone comes out with the same kind of result everyone is very educated everyone knows a lot of things and is able to have a um, fulfilling career that also contributes to the success of the country, then 
you need to make sure you can't just give all the agency to the student and be like, here's your personalized teacher. You have now all the opportunities to make it happen. Because in the end, if all the people just don't have the same life and they're not the same people, they can't work the same, the same amount of time, the same amount of intensity with it. So in the end, you end up with a far large variety of different results. So this atomization thought really gave, it gives me pause on like, okay, really cool. LLMs, individualized learning, great opportunity, but also could make things hard to recover and hard to. And then you just, you kind of overshot the goal. Uh, and how do you get down from that again, right? Like once you implemented the habit or once you made the right. design changes, system changes, um, it's really hard to be for people, but don't use it too much. <laughs> like, only do those certain things. Sure. Um, especially when you then think about designing gamification in it. Why it's a lot of fun for students, for kids to experiment, to learn new things. Uh, there's a potential harm. And the possible response to that could be that you completely redesign the whole education system and figure something out. But how often does that really work? And also, it requires so much thought. And then we're coming back to product design. Right. It's like, I guess there are the two ways of you build something that is done is better than perfect, then you iterate. But that would mean you build something completely new and subject a whole generation or maybe several generations of students to this something new and then you just iterate over it. And that's hard to argue um, or make an argument that this is a good way in the long run if you somewhat sacrifice the short run. But on the other hand, you try to build the perfect thing from the ground up. But you have to test it. I guess if you have quantum computing uh, available, you could simulate it all, but we don't. So you have to t have to test it on a large scale with students, which kind of brings you back to the to the variation or the the approach we just discussed. So that makes it hard. So those are like some thoughts that now being back um, second week of of my second year of the masters kind of. Um, follow me around and but there is and that's just about like student interactions with LLMs right like there's right. so much teacher interactions yes. feedback systems measurement systems helping them design classes um, helping them evaluate student assessments etc etc that's all being worked on like for people that have gone through the educational system but haven't really touched or had any insights since. Basically, every aspect of education right now is being challenged by large language models, by this new tech, to see if it could be done better. Some of it on a system or like a big, like top-down kind of level, school districts, governments looking at the things, and a lot of it just individually. Every actor within the education system kind of just trying out and seeing if they can make their lives a little easier or their teaching 
for the student outcome a little bit better. Mm, let me ask you a specific question. Um, yeah, like, so you talked about like LLMs challenging mm -hmm. um, educators, and it's both in like a good way, and like it creates a new tool, but um, there's also the question of like, does it decrease the ability of people to, of students to like learn how to critically think? Like, for example, um, like essays are a big part of how people learn to write and structure their thoughts and think. Um, and LLMs seem to be taking that away to some extent, at least for like take-home essays. Um, is there a way for um, large language models and like essays and other like writing or similar like ways to learn to be reconciled? So I mean like the current approach to learning and education? Yeah, basically. Like because just improving it. Yeah. I, I guess the two choices here, like you can either allow usage of AI, like assuming that in the future, like the mm -hmm. skills taken over by AI mm -hmm. are not super useful. Um, and so you should focus on something else. Or is it more important to like learn these skills, even though it can be done like maybe like better or easier? eventually with AI. Like this is a debate that has just begun to occur. Just this week I sat into a lecture from a professor I'm taking a class. Uh, he's a education philosophist. And he's publishing a paper on the influence of AI on learning. And he basically built this model of three different kinds of students. The one that gets a task and writes an essay, gets a task to write an essay and writes it all himself or herself. And then the second one that uses the LLM to basically make the, the kind of like a bit of curation without like helping him to process. Right. And then the third one that just lets the LLM write the whole thing and then just makes edits at the end. And they debated for a while, it was like in humanities department in Stanford, on what, of, what, what would that mean? Like, what does that, what implications does do those different three approaches have? What outcomes might they have? But also, like in like how this challenges the, the current state of the education system, because like all three of them already exist. Like the third one was like the third one, although now is has a bit of a different form and is more readily available was already possible in the sense of when you could just steal the ideas of someone else and uh, plagiarize other people's works and sell it as your own. Um, it now has a bit of a different form and there is a debate of if LLMs are actually plagiarizing or not. Right. But um, this is already like occurring and has been occurring for a longer time so um it's a it's a it's a difficult debate on 
if you really want to now make like substantial changes or just integrate it into the existing system and i like i can give you an answer on that i don't think anyone really can give you an answer i'm sure there are camps i'm sure there are people that are argumenting one side or the other very heavily but i haven't found conclusive arguments for one or the other also because on a theoretical basis that's one thing on a practical basis in just a country or a state in the u.s it's hard enough like because then the, the practical implications are just gigantic i mean there are very few systems that are as complex as the educational system with all its players and its time lags in terms of teacher education infrastructure parent education etc etc uh so my just by the the thought alone that changing or restarting a whole system or rebuilding a whole system from scratch and just replacing the old one is just so complicated to do and doesn't guarantee a better outcome and is in our democratic political systems almost impossible to implement. Yeah. I feel like that our society will still go the safer route of just incrementally trying to improve the system, trying to merge this new technology into the existing system. We'll have to endure a lot of damage that it that might create on the micro level, maybe also on the macro level. But um, I think in the end, there's still a really good chance that overall it will improve the learning and therefore also like the life outcome of the people. I feel like this is something at the beginning was like, if you looked at individual players and how they might be affected, there was a lot of pessimism. I feel like now it's getting more and more euphoric, the more and more, especially teacher get confronted with it and right. get arrange themselves with it or even appreciate the existence. And uh, I think on the student side with a good amount of education of how to use it properly, kind of like it was with the occurrence of the internet the beginning as well just don't swallow all the information you get critically think right. i think you can really promote learning and learning outcome i see okay interesting hmm. so you're in the camp of integrated well for now it'll be integrated and what that means is likely so like so do you think teachers will allow usage they they already do as some some, okay. But there are also some that prohibit it. There are schools that have banned all programs that mention AI on their website, mm. including translation programs, including I apps see. like Anki, the flashcard app. Yeah. So there are the two extremes. Right. Plus, there's a good amount of education systems that just don't have a widespread use of internet. Right. Makes sense. <laughs> we are very US centric or very Europe centric, but you really shouldn't forget about that. Uh, books are still the prevalent technology in school. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy to forget that um, in, a, in a high tech world. This is true. I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, like in middle school, and I also went to middle school in China for a while, and uh, it was, yeah, it's like these little, like, very cheap paperback books that they tried to, like, get to everyone. 
Um, yeah. So yeah, it's definitely like a internet world though. I don't know yet if, yeah, I guess it's been a while since then for me. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate the depth of our conversation and I really appreciate you for just the kind of thinking that you do on your own time because mm -hmm. it really reflects in whenever we have a conversation on or off the record. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> and you as well. I mean, like, uh, that's like the nature of growth, right? It's not interesting if the, uh, if our opinions don't change over time, because yeah. otherwise we're just rehashing the same, the same discussion. Yeah. There's a, there's a quote I heard recently. And I'm sure I heard that one before. It was, if looking back a year, you don't think a lot of your thoughts and opinions were completely wrong. Mm. You just haven't grown enough. Mm. I feel like that's... Like, yes and no. I feel like it's more like you add on to your beliefs, like... Well, there are definitely things that, well, maybe I have, I'm, I'm a person who's not growing, but I feel like it's more, um, I feel it's more like I know what I don't know and yeah. I know and well, and there's stuff I don't know that I don't know. Yes. I think actually another way to think about it is like, ideally your mind should be as open as possible. Like, like you should be very cognizant of things that you're not confident about. And so as you learn like you're not completely replacing your old beliefs. Yeah. Like you're just moving them towards like the new distribution. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, okay. If I really reflect, there are definitely a lot of things that I was like, I thought it was one way, but it's actually the other way. But I think there's also just a lot of things. I was like, I don't have an opinion on this, but now I have an opinion on it. Yeah. So that's two, also two ways to learn. Very important. Yeah. Um, not to have a default of an opinion to everything. Yeah. But leave the spaces open to feel at a later point. Yeah. Great. Thank you, man. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. See you soon. Bye.